Good job. kids or if you are a kiddo now's the time where you head to the back and the rest of us are gonna keep on worshiping
And I will turn to you when the night is falling When my sin is calling When the pants see straight and the smoke's in my eyes I will wait for you when the future's blurry I miss the rush and hurry When the pain is real and the questions burn Cause there's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain And no wind to your sky There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain And no wind to your sky Sing that again There's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean No top to your love there's no limit there's no limit to your love there's no limit no no and I will turn and walk in a new direction remove this infection and this need to own and get what's mine and I will ask for I'm lost and now my motives to the cross And I'll find peace in all of the promises you've made And I will call on your name, Jesus Cause there's no limit to your love There's no bottom to your ocean There's no top to your mountain No end to your sky So 
next is Holly. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, <clears throat> you endure, this is a grace, a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 2, 19-25. Thank you, Holly. Thanks, Kyler. I should also say thank you, Kate, um, for reading uh, our call to worship this morning. She was uh, kind of pinch hit. We had uh, someone else scheduled to read, and they couldn't be here, and so... Kate just jumped in, so thanks for doing that on such short notice and serving our church in that way. Um, I think I bit off a bit more than I can chew this morning with 1 Peter chapter 3, so I'm going to um, just kind of quickly jump in and, um, yeah, just I, I want to say a few things by way of introduction, though. Um, so as you know, we've been in the letter of 1 Peter for the last couple of weeks. This will be our third Sunday in this letter together. And I would like to just take a few minutes here at the beginning to kind of remind us of a few things, kind of where we've been um, in the letter thus far and kind of where we are at today. Um, so let me remind you of just a few things in particular. First, Peter began this letter with hope. He begins in chapter 1, verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. And so this is important. We said this for the last several weeks, but I'll say it again. This is really important for everything that comes after it in this letter. All of 1 Peter, everything that comes after this grand exhortation of living hope, everything that we've said and everything that we'll say this morning and in the weeks to follow kind of assumes this about you and about me and about who it is that Peter addresses, that we have been born again into a living hope. And if you remember what we said um, a few weeks ago, we said being born again into a living hope is being born again into a reality where Jesus is at the center. Being born again into a new way of life, into Jesus' way of life, his way, his truth, his life. We said that a living hope transcends our circumstances. In other words, living hope is not itself a circumstance. It's not just a place we arrive at where everything is kind of in order and um, feels right. It's not really even a what or a how. A living hope is a who. It's a person. It is Jesus Christ. He lives, so we have a living hope. Second, we saw that hope shapes us. So just in general, whatever it is you hope in is going to give your life purpose and meaning. It's going to ground you in something 
going to kind of propel you into the future. It's going to guide your life and your character. In other words, just generally speaking, we become what we hope. Whatever it is we have our eyes set on, whatever target we're aiming at, that is who we will inevitably become. Specifically, the Christian hope, a living hope in Jesus Christ, ultimately we should expect to become Christ-like. If he is our living hope, and our heart's affection and our mind's attention are set on him, as we say each week in our gathering, then ultimately we should expect to become more and more like him. So you'll remember a few weeks ago I invited you to kind of consider where is your hope at currently? Given everything that we've kind of all walked through over the last 18 or so months, I invited you to take a moment and just consider where is your hope? Because to the degree that your hope is in something or someone else other than Jesus Christ, it is to that degree that you can expect to be less than Christ-like. Third reminder, uh, you'll, rem you'll remember um, that I've suggested in each of the last two weeks um, that Peter is a letter very much concerned with the social status and political problems faced by the early church. I've kind of said that several different times. Um, I've suggested, too, that we ought to at least make an attempt to translate the social status, political issues of the early church into our own day and try to apply whatever it is that Peter has to say to them um, to ourselves and bring them into our contemporary world. John Eliot is a, a New Testament scholar, um, and he writes it this way. First Peter is the New Testament writing that most systematically and comprehensively addresses the issue of Christian alien residence and responsibility within the structure of non-Christianity. Within the structure of non-Christianity. We've talked a lot about alien residence, what it means to be strangers, what it means to be exiles as Christian people in an unbelieving and non-Christian world. And finally, as the last reminder of where we've been, all three of these first points kind of converge into a final point. And that is, to the degree that we allow our living hope, Jesus Christ, to shape and transform us, specifically in how we think about and engage in social problems and political issues, then we should expect to be misunderstood by the wider culture. That is, as Peter will even tell us, we should not be surprised if, as those who follow Jesus, that we tend to not fit in the categories that are given to us within our social, political, cultural world. That is, that as we follow Jesus, inevitably we'll realize that we don't fit neatly into the left or the right. We don't fit neatly into Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, fundamental or progressive, because, as we see in the scriptures again and again, Jesus tends to challenge us on either extreme. He has something to say to both ends of these spectrum. And so if you'll remember last Sunday um, in chapter 2, we looked at how those of us that have been born again into a living hope, as we go and try to go into the world as a sent people, as a chosen people, find ourselves caught up into three things. And we saw last week in chapter 2 that we're caught up into a people, that is the church, we saw that we're caught up into a purpose as the church, as the chosen people of God, with, as I mentioned uh, during the announcements, 
in this kind of twofold task of inward purpose and outward purpose. We'll talk a bit more about that this morning as well. And we saw that we're also caught up into a posture. We're given a posture. We considered the role of the church, God's chosen people. We saw that the twofold purpose of the church is, on the one hand, this inward purpose. We're called to build one another up into a spiritual household, to equip and encourage and encourage one another within the household of faith. It's our inward purpose. And we saw, too, that our outward purpose is to be a witness in the world, to the world, and for the world. And so if you've been following the pastoral notes that Jeremy's been sending out the last several Wednesdays, um, you ought to be really familiar with this second charge, this outward purpose that the church is given. As one translation has it, in the words of Jesus, here's another way to put it. You are to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this. As public as a city on a hill. Again, political, social imagery. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. This generous Father in heaven comes from Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. We saw last week, too, that this purpose we undergo or we take on this purpose with a certain posture. We saw that when either edifying the church, our inward purpose, or when witnessing to the world in our outward purpose, we saw that Jesus gives us the posture of submission, service, and suffering. We saw this in chapter 2, um, really just with the text that Holly read for us just a few minutes ago. And we kind of left on a cliffhanger, if you recall last Sunday. We ended with this posture of submission, service, and suffering. For to this you have been called. What is this? This posture that Jesus took. Submission, service, suffering. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so this morning we're going to continue considering this posture that we were given uh, in chapter 2. And this morning, we're going to look at submission, service, and suffering in some of the most ordinary, mundane, and intimate relationships that we will ever have. So just, again, as we begin, before we get to our text, uh, let me point out a few things. Much of this is kind of assumed in this letter, and much about of what I'm about to say is really kind of assumed throughout the entire New Testament. But I think as, as modern people, we just kind of miss it, and we don't really pick up on it. So I just want to make it explicit for all of us, because I think it's really important and, and actually rather helpful. So Peter, in this letter, is writing to a group of what we would nowadays consider house churches. These were churches that met within kind of um, smaller uh, again, house churches. He addresses households, in essence. And so this is going to include married men and women. It's going to include, include house servants, laborers, their children, of course. It's going to include um, extended family, some of whom were also married men and women. Here's the, here's the really interesting thing. It's going to include family members that do not yet believe the way that these Christian believers do. And it was this hodgepodge 
this ad hoc amalgam of relationships that Peter addresses in this letter. This is to whom he is writing. And so before we jump in, we just need to recognize that Peter is writing to households. And this, of course, has significant social and political implications. Again, Eliot is helpful here, writing of, you know, uh, first century kind of uh, household definitions. The household served as the basis of communal self-definitions of the people of God. House or household designated both the narrower and the broader forms of social, political, ethnic, and religious communities. And so because we live in America, because we live in a country that has a document called the Bill of Rights, um, let me clarify one more thing before we read our text, before we get into it. So the verses that we are about to look at, and in fact, much of the ethic and ethical and moral um, and really specifically relational principles that we find in Scripture have nothing to do with individual rights. They're not concerned about your rights. Rights are, strictly speaking, a political category and a relatively recent one at that. And they are not how the Bible wants to talk about human freedom, liberty, dignity, worth, and how we ought to treat one another. Often, I think when we encounter texts in the Bible um, that talk about these ethical principles, how we ought to live with one another, how we ought to treat one another, um, I think we get bogged down and kind of can't help but read it through the lens of rights that we've kind of inherited um, being the people that we are, living in the time and place that we live. And so I just want to invite you. This may kind of um, feel a bit abrasive initially, but I just want to invite you to suspend that way of thinking this morning as we enter into this text together. I think it would be helpful to just lay that way of thinking aside for a moment and allow Scripture to speak for itself. As D.A. Carson has said, if you think only in terms of your rights, you will always find yourself on the end of bitterness. And of course, as we know, the root of bitterness is division. So let's begin um, looking at what First Peter has to say. Remember, in the context of households, so he's going to address married people. Um, but I do think, um, before those of you that are not married tune me out, I do think this has significant, significant application for all of us. So just hang with me. These exhortations um, have something to say to each of us, not just wives and husbands. And I should say one more thing, and then we're going to get into 1 Peter 3. We'll probably spend a, what some of you will find a disproportionate amount of time on wives rather than husbands. And that's not because I think that uh, wives need more instruction. It has nothing to do with that. I just actually think wives have more to teach us about what it means to take this posture of submission, service, and suffering. I think we learn, we can learn a lot more um, from what Peter has to say to them. So anyways, I just wanted to say that I was thinking about that this morning, like it felt like we spend, we'll spend more time on that. And to be fair, Peter does too. So just taking his lead. Okay. Rory's laughing. Okay. That's, that's a good, that's a good sign. Okay. Let's begin. First uh, Peter chapter three, we're going to read in verse one. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So be subject, uh, the ESV has it that way. The NIV, I think, says submit. So the word's the same. Just want to make that clear. The idea here is one of submission. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women of ho who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So we'll stop there for now. <clears throat> so notice this, the first word here, at least in the ESV, the first word, likewise. So this word, um, to be clear, reaches all the way back through what Holly read for us, all the way to the middle of chapter 2. So already, knowing where we've been in chapter 2, we should be clued in to this posture of submission, service, and suffering. So let's just look at it quickly. Peter uses this word several times throughout the letter. The likewise, most commentators kind of agree that the likewise is referring back to chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter writes, be subject or submit to, for the Lord's sake, every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governor as, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He'll use this same word again later in the chapter in verse 18. Servants, be subject, submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle but also to the unjust. Of course, he uses it here in, verse, or in chapter 3, and then he'll use it one more time in chapter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to, submit to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, um, with all of that in mind, understanding that this idea of submission, this notion of being subject to something obviously is not called out as only the task of wives, but there's some idea of submission given to kind of all of us, one way or another. So I just want to keep that in front of us, and now let's look at what it means to be subject to your husband in the context of marriage. And so we'll do that by just simply saying what submission is not. I think we get all the goofy ideas we have about it out of the way, hopefully what's left um, will make good sense for us. And as I said a moment ago, um, I think we should keep in mind what a wife being subject to her husband has to teach the rest of us about what it means to take the posture of submission more generally. So I'll try to kind of tease that out as we go, but keep that in front of you. So submission does not mean agreeing with everything that a husband says or does. You see this in verse 1, right? Where the wife is called, um, where the wife is a Christian, but her husband is not. It's assumed that her, that her husband doesn't believe. So he has one set of ideas, she has another set of ideas, and they disagree about the most important thing that they could ever disagree about, namely, who Jesus is and what he came to do. So submission can't just mean agreeing with everything that a husband says or does. 
So likewise, nor does the submission in the social or political sphere mean that we are going to agree with every policy decision, every value that's enacted in legislation. Submission does not mean leaving your brain and your IQ and your will at the door. It's not the inability or the unwillingness to think for oneself. So wives are not called to be a carbon copy of their husband. Submission does not mean that wives give up their autonomy. But it does mean that they consider their husband's wants and desires, just as their husband ought to consider theirs. Submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change their husband. Right? The whole point of these verses right here is that the wife is going to strive to win her husband over to the way that she believes, to convince him to see God change his heart so that he might see Jesus as Lord and Savior. So paradoxically, this is weird for us, but sometimes submission is the very means by which people change. So I invite you again, what does that say about how we engage in a world socially, politically? But conversely, neither does this mean that a wife's only job is to change her husband. Submission does not mean putting the will of one's husband before the will of God. This is probably obvious for most of us. She's a follower of Jesus. Her husband is not. Ultimately, she submits to Christ. Submission to Jesus relativizes our submission to our husbands. It relativizes the way that we submit to governments, employers, etc., Submission does not mean that a wife gets all of her spiritual nourishment, her spiritual growth and leadership from her husband. doesn't mean that's the only place she has to go if she's looking for guidance and spiritual nourishment. Of course, a good husband should be a place for spiritual nourishment and growth for his wife. He should be a source of strength. But what this text is showing us is in this particular instance, he is not, given that he's not even a believer. So what the text shows is that when a husband's spiritual leadership is lacking, a Christian wife actually has other resources that she can go to. She can go to Christ. She has her own responsibility for her spiritual growth. The text, in fact, kind of assumes somewhat the opposite. Not that the wife will be utterly and um, exclusively dependent on her husband for spiritual growth and nourishment. It actually assumes that she will develop strength of character and spiritual vitality on her own, not from her husband, but for her husband. Verse 5 says that her hope in God and the hope that her husband will join her there is up to her. And so sometimes I... I know this will ruffle some feathers, and I don't know that that it's necessarily a problem around here. Um, I know most of all of you somewhat well, so I don't know that it's necessarily an issue around here, but I'll say it anyways. I do think in our tradition, in a lot of the circles that, you know, um, kind of our spiritual uh, lineage comes from, I do think often, again, this will ruffle some feathers, sometimes wives shirk their responsibility and they fall back into some complacent thing where they want to lay all the burden on their husband. And so 
they place too much of their own spiritual vitality and nourishment on their husband, and they don't take responsibility for themselves. So now that I've made at least half the room mad, finally, um, submission is not coerced or forced or the result of fear. Submission is not coerced. Verse 6 says that you, the wife in question here, are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So in other words, submission is, is a free act. It is uncoerced. It is not the result of fear. And so a Christian wife is a free woman. When she submits to her husband, whether he is a believer or unbeliever, she does it in freedom and not out of fear. And so likewise, biblical submission in general to anyone or anything, remember verse uh, 13 from chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Generally speaking, biblical submission will always be uncoerced, never motivated by fear, but out of respect, honor, and love. Whether it's husbands in the context of marriage, whether it's governments, whether it's our parents, our employers, submission is always a free act. To bring it all home, submission is not weakness. It is not passivity. Instead, submission itself is an act of service and a demonstration of strength. Remember um, the scene in uh, the Gospels where Jesus comes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's on his knees and he's praying. I think it's Maybe he's not on his knees. Maybe that's just me kind of putting that in there. Maybe it doesn't say that. But I imagine him on his knees praying. And he says, Father, not your will, or not my will, but your will be done. Now, all of us would see this as a profound act of submission, but we would never consider it weakness. We would never consider it passivity. No, we would see it as strength, immense courage. And this is biblical submission. So then, likewise, wives are called to submit to serve. Let me, um, let me just take a moment. I'm going to pray for uh, the wives at Christ City, the women at Christ City, before we continue. Father, we thank you for the, the women of Christ City, the wives that um, help us, that that actually lead us in this idea, this notion of submission, that show us what it means to submit, that they teach us about Christ and how they follow this biblical charge of submission and service. May we all learn and be encouraged, help them as we saw in all of the admonitions to be subject to, to submit to. Again and again, Peter says, whether they're good or bad, wise or foolish, believing or unbelieving, the Lord help us all learn the way of submission. We thank you for the women and wives of Christ City that show us this. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so moving on, what about husbands? Here again we see in verse 7, at least the ESV has it as the first word, likewise, husbands. So again, the question is, what does this word likewise here refer to? Does it mean, does it refer simply to likewise, all the verses that just came before it, 
Husbands are to submit to their wives, likewise? Or does it mean something else? Now, obviously, um, a big rift exists here between how people uh, interpret these verses. Most commentators that I've been exposed to anyways agree that Peter here is still referring to the same place that he referred when he used the term likewise for the wife. So in verse 1 he says likewise, he's referring back to the beginning of the section in chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, be subject, submit to every human institution. Most commentators say he's here referring to the same place. In other words, he is reminding us that we should read all of these exhortations to wives and to husbands in the context of this general admonition to be subject to or to be in submission to human institutions, wives to husbands, and husbands, likewise, are called to submit and serve, but differently. They are called to submit and to serve, but differently. So at this point, I just want to be clear, because I think we live in a culture um, that is drastically confused, and I don't want to add to the confusion by kind of like waffling here and saying some things that just aren't helpful or are unclear, so I just feel like it's best to just be kind of explicit. Men and women are different. I think in this room, most of us agree about that fact. And therefore, the Bible speaks about men and women in different ways, and wives and husbands take on different roles and responsibilities within the context of marriage. So likewise, husbands, you are called to submit and to serve, but differently than your wife. You are called to submit to Christ and his idea of marriage. Say that again. You are called to submit to Christ and his idea of marriage. Husbands are not called to submit to the culture's idea of marriage. They're not called to submit to society's ideas about marriage, the Supreme Court's ideas about marriage, or any other conception of marriage that is currently in vogue. Husbands are not called to submit to some version of locker room masculinity or male machismo. But you are called to submit to Christ and his ideas about marriage. You're also not called to submit to these reactionary misunderstandings and misconceptions about what it means to be a man and a husband as our culture um, kind of reacts to the abuses of men throughout the age. And so you're not called to shrink back from your responsibility as a man, as a brother, as a husband, or as a father. You're not called to submit to the blurring of the lines between what it means to be men and women or the confusions about what it means to be husbands and wives. You are called to submit Christ and his ideas about marriage, and you are called to serve your wife and your family. As Paul writes to the men in Corinth in chapter 16 of that letter, he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. And here's the thing that I think sometimes uh, we forget or we just um, overlook or somehow trip up on, but here's the thing. This will look different for each one of us, guys. This is not a one-size-fits-all. In every marriage, for every man, in every circumstance, in every family and household, the way that we live this out will look different, and that is okay. So husbands, one of the ways you love and serve your wife is by understanding her and honoring her. Is by understanding 
and honoring her. So many of the guys that I know, many of us, so I'll speak of myself too, understand lots of things. We spend an inordinate amount of time understanding various sports. We know the NFL draft every spring. We know the, the roster for every Major League Baseball team. We understand how the stock market works. We understand how compound interest functions within our economy, all of these things. And yet, we spend very little time trying to understand our wives. And to understand and to honor someone, something I think often goes overlooked in these conversations about men and women, wives and husbands, to understand and honor someone, according to Scripture, includes allowing them to make their own decisions even when we disagree with them. It allows, means allowing them to make their own decisions and accept the consequences for those decisions even if at times we disagree. In other words, it means to understand that they too are made in the image of God and that that means we are called to honor their freedom and their dignity and so husbands, one last thing. Men, one last thing. I don't think this is an issue um, around here, but I'll say it anyways as just kind of a final warning or word. Um, husbands, men, we need to understand the difference between submission and oppression. You do not confuse these two things. Submission is a free act, as we've said, that involves trust, respect, and authority, all of which should be present in a marriage. But oppression is a coerced act that involves manipulation, fear, and tyranny, none of which should be present in a marriage. And so, again, as a final warning, do not confuse these two things, submission and oppression. So let me pray for the husbands, the men of Christ City, before we move on. God, I pray that you would clarify for all of us what it means to be men and women, that you would give us a vision of our roles in relationships um, as you see them, as you have laid them out for us. God, I pray that on one side, we would not fall into the trap of this goofy, authoritative or tyrannical notion of, um, of being this... Uh, I don't even know the word, but don't let us fall into this, these crazy notions of abusive, oppressive um, male dominance. But also, Lord, I pray that we would not fall off to the other side where we would shrink back and be complacent or selfish or um, timid, but that um, as men, as husbands, as fathers, we would live into the call that we have um, to care for our families to understand and honor our wives, and to submit to Christ. In his name, amen. Let's keep reading. Um, we're going to continue in verse 8 now. So again, I mentioned at the beginning, a bit off more than I can chew. This is really two sermons in one, so part two. He writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For 
Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And you'll notice in your scriptures that it refers to Psalm 34 there. That's the quote that Peter um, is using, which Kate read for us uh, to begin our gathering. All good. <clears throat> okay, so here again, it may take a bit of work, but remember the context that we're in. Remember that we're still in this section that Peter began with be subject to every human institution. We're still thinking around this idea of submission. We're still thinking around this idea of service that's still in the foreground. And now the admonition is generally to the church. You'll remember last week, as we looked at chapter 2, as we've already mentioned, um, we saw the twofold purpose of the church, God's chosen people. As I've said, we see that the church has an inward purpose to build itself up. In chapter 2, he says, into a spiritual house, spiritual household. And we see that God's chosen people also have an outward purpose, that is to bear witness to the gospel in the world. And so these verses here in chapter 3 are gesturing in, this, in a similar direction. As a chosen people, we are called to submit to one another as a means of grace, as a means by which we build one another up into a spiritual household. And of course, this theme runs throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 5, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Philippians 2, be of the same mind, have the same love, be in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Mutual submission, one to another, within the household of faith. Now, as for the outward purpose of the church, here Peter tells us to bless. And, of course, this echoes again back into chapter 2, where, if you'll remember, we were told to do good. We're told to do good in the sight of unbelievers so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So the quotation from Psalm 34, as we just read it, and as Kate read for us at the beginning, kind of says it plainly. Do good, seek peace, and pursue it. But of course, the distinction here between, uh, if you will, kind of the inward and outward purpose of the church, between edifying one another, building ourselves up into a spiritual house, and the distinction between witnessing to the world, sharing the gospel, the distinction kind of breaks down, and it's not nearly as stark as maybe I've made it sound for the last two weeks. Because First Peter doesn't call us to only to submit to those that are on the inside and only to serve those on the outside, say it kind of crudely. Instead, Peter exhorts us to submit to everyone and to serve everyone, both inside and outside of the church. I know this feels uh, maybe a bit overstated at first, but remember what he said. Love everyone. Honor everyone. <clears throat> so remember what we've said this morning about submission. The ways that we've kind of defined it within the context of marriage and what that can teach us about submission more generally. 
And remember that this extends to what it means to be subject to every human institution and to honor everyone, as Peter told us in chapter 2. And so submission and service are both a means and a method to fulfill the church's purpose, both inwardly and outwardly. Here's what I mean. That is to say that when we submit and serve the church, submit to and serve the church, we are not only building up the church into a spiritual house, but we are also bearing witness to the gospel. Because as we do that, the world sees and takes notice. In the words of Jesus from John 13, famous verse, you all know it, by this, by what? By submitting to and serving one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But additionally, when we submit to and serve those outside of the church, we are not only bearing witness to the gospel, but we are building up the church into a spiritual household, into a place and a people where God dwells and does what God does. Save, heal, bless, and redeem. So that felt like a bit of an aside, but it's going to be important kind of for where we're going to close our time. So before we continue, let me pray for our church, and then we'll kind of keep on in chapter 3. Father, help us see, help us catch sight of what you call us to as a people. Help us see what it means to submit to a faith family, to, to you, Lord Jesus, and your bride. And help us see what it means to walk in submission to those not in the family that are outside of our church and what it means to serve both and how those things relate and the good that it does not only materially or um, physically and temporally for us here in this life, in this place, but Father, may we see the good that it does eternally as it brings salvation to the world. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we're almost done. So far we've discussed, you've probably noticed, submission and service, and we've said very little about suffering. So let's finish with this last, this third leg of posture. The mission, service, and suffering. Let's read verses 13 through 20. <clears throat> now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey or did not submit. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So there's a lot in those verses. We're not going to get into the weeds with Jesus going to proclaim to the spirits that did not obey baptism in relation to Noah. For our purposes, we're going to just stick on uh, this posture of suffering, submission, service. Francis Buford, some of you may have read this book. I really enjoyed it. And a few years ago, I wrote a book called Unapologetic, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Still Makes Surprisingly, Surprising Emotional Sense. And he writes this. Because some people ask nowadays what kind of religion it is that chooses an instrument of torture for its symbol, as if the cross on churches must represent some kind of endorsement. The answer is this, one that takes the existence of suffering seriously. One that takes the existence of suffering seriously. So in this life, in this world, with these people, the question is not if, but when you will suffer. You and I will suffer sometimes because of our faith. That is, it will be explicitly because we follow Jesus that we will experience suffering. In Peter's time and place, this was much more overt, much more physical. It came in the form of direct persecution. It was a consequence. Uh, it, was a, it was a direct consequence of believing. The believers, the churches in Peter's day, were persecuted, were slandered, beaten, imprisoned, executed, and ostracized because they were Christians. And this type of suffering still goes on in some parts of the world today. We often lose sight of this, given where we live. In our time and place, however, we too will suffer because of our faith from time to time, although it will be drastically different. We should expect to be misunderstood. We should expect to be slandered. We should expect to be reviled. And we should expect to be silenced. There will be times when following Jesus is at cross purposes with the world's agenda. We won't always be given a fair hearing. We won't be allowed to nuance our views or explain our positions. We will experience prejudice. We will experience partisanship. And we will be misrepresented and associated with ideas and movements that are not our own. But as 1 Peter tells us, we will also suffer not merely because of our faith, but in spite of our faith. But in spite of our faith. And this too will lead to suffering. As we go to bless the world, as we go to alleviate suffering, our very attempts to do so will cause our own suffering. That is, we will be taken advantage of, exploited, overlooked, and our willing submission will be co-opted as passivity, complacency, and oppression. So our attempts at service will be received as threats. Our attempts at submission will be perceived as attacks. Or as Peter will tell us in the next chapter, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So we should expect to encounter suffering in the world in all its forms, physical, psychological, and spiritual. Now, all that I've said about suffering just now, 
seems is really obvious to most of us. It goes, kind of goes without saying. I think most of us assume that. And we're not surprised when that happens. But what I think does surprise us, in an aspect that we often are not as well familiar with, well, we're super familiar with it, but it doesn't go said, is that sometimes we're surprised that we find ourselves suffering in the very relationships that we've talked about this morning. Oftentimes, we're surprised when we suffer, not as our not in our interaction with an unbelieving world, not as we go into the world to try to share our faith or serve a world that doesn't want us to help, but we're super surprised and caught off guard when we find ourselves suffering in our marriages, in our families, with our friends, in our workplaces, and in our church. Inevitably, when you and I submit to and serve other human beings Suffering is not far behind. So I'm here to cheer you all up this morning and uh, make sure you leave feeling really good about life. But here's the truth. Your love will be ill-received. It will be exploited and rejected. Your submission will be trampled on, taken advantage of. Your attempts to love will be rejected and not reciprocated. I think we all know this. I think we've all experienced this. Sometimes it is the most intimate and close relationships that have the capacity, capacity to hurt us the deepest. And it hurts. This isn't to blame your husband or your wife. This isn't to blame your family of origin, your parents. This isn't to blame those that have um, disappointed you in the church. It is, however, to be honest about the realities of life together in this world in this place, in the midst of sin, that we bump into each other, that we step on each other's toes, that we say things that are insensitive and inconsiderate, that we don't have the full story, that we disagree and then argue poorly, that we lose our temper, say things we don't mean, and it hurts. And in all of this, in every every and all instances of suffering, what 1 Peter tells us is that our posture remains the same. One of submission and service. One of love and blessing. Holiness and honor. Worship and witness. Peace and patience. Gentleness and respect. All of which Peter calls us into in the midst of suffering. Because this is what we are called to, both in our interactions with those inside the church and outside of the church. And perhaps the most challenging with those in our own home. And so as a final point, if we can pull this off, which with God's help, you can. We'll we'll talk a bit more about that at communion in a few moments. But if and when we assume this posture of submission and service, inevitably, the world will take notice that when you and I adopt the posture of Jesus submitting to and serving and suffering in the world and for the sake of others, inevitably the world will take notice and those around you will be curious. Which brings us to the famous verse, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Therefore, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
This is not a call to apologetics or to some philosophical defense of the gospel or a systematic explanation of the logical coherence of our faith or any of the other ways we often misapply this verse. What Peter is saying here is, is this, when you submit, serve, and suffer, it will raise questions in the minds of those around you. And so you ought to be ready to tell them where you get your strength from, what sustains you, what girds you up, what holds you. You should be ready to share your hope. It is suffering that raises questions in the minds of those around us. It is submission that seems absurd. And it is service that feels, I don't know the word, but sometimes it feels like the way we serve the world, like it's not doing anything, and yet we keep doing it anyway. And these will raise questions in a watching world. So let me close by saying this. You should be ready to share your hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brothers, sisters, the household of faith that we call Christ City Church, do not shrink back. Do not grow weary in doing good. Learn the way of Jesus. Learn the way of the cross. Die to yourself daily. Take the posture of submission, service, and suffering, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who took the form of a servant, submitted himself to suffering for your sake, for you, and for me. Let's pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll continue. Father, thank you for this, not only example, but this life that we are invited to receive in Jesus Christ. That he not only gives us an example, but he enables us to submit and to serve and to suffer well for the sake of others in the world as a way to bring your name to lost people. Father, as we think about what it means to suffer in the world in 2021 in Dallas, Texas, we can't help but pray for those around the world our brothers and sisters overseas in other parts of the world who experience persecution and suffering on a level that we, most of us, can't even imagine. And so, Lord, we pray for the suffering and persecuted church across the world. May you protect them. May you comfort them in the midst of suffering. God, may they lead us in what it means to suffer for your name's sake. Lord, we pray for our families, for our marriages, for all the various ways that we are called to submit and serve and suffer in this life. And Lord, may you enable us so that as we're given opportunities to share the hope that we have, you may get the glory and people may come to know you. So Lord, we love you. We pray that you would renew our hearts and our minds Show us the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. It's not that all of life is suffering. The cross shows us that there is vindication, that there is triumph, that there is overcoming. But Lord, as we sit in 1 Peter, we want to hear what this letter has to tell us about what it means to follow Jesus. So show us submission, suffering, and service for your sake. In Christ's name, amen. All right, guys, you're welcome to go ahead and stand. We're going to sing a song. And, uh, man, if your hearts are heavy, um, as 
you're hopefully just allowing the Lord to illuminate in your heart and in your life ways that you're not submitting or ways that you are um, not being quick to understand or um, just thinking about uh, just in touch with the amount of suffering that comes with um, trying to love people in the midst of um, they're not understanding you. They're, they're not receiving or understanding your love. They're misunderstanding your love as uh, and your attempts at patience and kindness as uh, attacks or whatever. I just, my prayer is that um, we would uh, take heart this week as we reflect on the reality that um, as we step into suffering in some ways this week, uh, we, are, we are not those who do that without hope, um, but that our hope is a living hope and a person uh, in whom we can, we can, um, we can find rest and, 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 and a strength that enables us to walk into suffering without fear so much, at least for me anyways. So, God, I just ask that you would, um, yeah, just help us to lay down any kind of uh, fear uh, that comes with just being burdened from um, suffering in a million different capacities, suffering that we've brought on in our own lives, that we've brought on ourselves, God, suffering that has been inflicted upon us, uh, the sufferings that come with uh, uh, the mess of relationships. And um, I just ask, God, that you would help us to pass that burden to you um, tonight, to this morning, today, God, and, um, and, and this week as we, um, as we continue. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've carried a burden but too long on my wasn't created to bear it alone. I hear your invitation to let it all go. Yeah, I hear now I'm laying it down and I know that I to the Father, I fall into grace. 
communion elements somewhere near you in the seat underneath you. And in many ways, this posture of submission, service, and suffering all kind of coalesce and come together. And we might even be able to just sum everything that we've had to say into a single word that is, stands at the center of our faith. Sacrifice. Submission, service, Suffering all come together and all be summed up in one word, sacrifice. So this is why each Sunday we receive communion together. Because we believe that Jesus' sacrifice meant something, and it did something, that it changed the world, that it changed us, and that it has ushered in a new way to live, a new way to be human, and so we have chosen to continue to choose to follow him, his way of life. We choose that. 
So we remember his sacrifice, his submission, his service, and his suffering each week in communion. So I invite you to read with me. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, but I've made some changes to the translation a bit to draw out some of these themes that we've explored these last couple of weeks. Read with me. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous served the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same posture, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather submit to the will of God. Let's receive together Christ's body and blood for us. Quickly, I know that we've ran a bit over this morning. I apologize. It took longer than I thought. If you have somewhere you need to be, you need to cut out, you're, feel free to. Kyler's got uh, another song that we're going to share together. So um, that's it. So thanks.
just thank you so much for this um, time of worship. Uh, we pray you'd be with us as we leave here. So in a benediction, we're going to uh, say this part right here. Now, who is there to harm you? Oh, am I reading the right thing here? Yeah, okay. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So again, God, we just pray you'd be with us as we attempt to enter into the mess of relationships with men and women and brothers and sisters and in our homes and uh, people's sensitivities and our own brokenness and struggling with where do we submit to our own, uh, like go along with other people's beliefs when it's like, that's not even how I see this. And um, how do we take on our own uh, responsibility in that? And uh, we need your help. And we just, we, we, so we approach that in faith, knowing that we have a living hope. And we just say thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. We'll see you guys next Sunday, if not sooner. God bless.